Can you grieve and rejoice at the same time? According to Charles Haddon Spurgeon, absolutely you can. There can be in the same heart great rejoicing and yet a temporary heaviness. This paradox, he says, has been known and felt by many of the Lord's children, and it is far from being the greatest paradox of the Christian life. This sermon, it's number 222 in the series, it comes right toward the end of the new Park Street Pulpit, Volume 4, is entitled The Christian's Heaviness and Rejoicing, and it very much comes from the heart of Spurgeon. His text is 1 Peter 1 and verse 6, wherein ye greatly rejoice, though now for a season, if need be, ye are in heaviness, or grief, or distress, through manifold temptations, trials, troubles, and tribulations. As we work our way through the sermons that Charles Haddon Spurgeon preached, this week we're reading sermons 220 to 226, which carries us from volume 4 into volume 5 of the new Park Street pulpit. Each week we concentrate on one sermon in particular, trying to get that representative sample of Spurgeon's ministry as he points his people toward Jesus Christ. This week it's Sermon 222, and this theme of heaviness and rejoicing is something that Spurgeon, as we'll see, feels very much himself. He says that that kind of tension which he's described is typical of a Christian, because a Christian is a creature corrupt and yet purified, mortal and yet immortal, fallen but yet exalted far above principalities and powers. Why do you marvel then that such a creature should also be possessed of mingled experience, greatly rejoicing and yet at the same time in heaviness through manifold temptations? Spurgeon wants us to look at two simple realities from his text. First of all, the Christian's heaviness and then in the next place, the Christian's great rejoicing. Now, there are some things that he doesn't deal with in the text, which we might have hoped that he would. We'll come to those, perhaps. But as he begins to explain the Christian's heaviness, I think you'll give him a bit of leeway with regard to the fact that he doesn't deal with everything that the text has to offer. So he talks, first of all, of the Christian's heaviness. And he says that the text has been quoted or perhaps misquoted 10,000 times for his own comfort, but he never really understood it until a, a day or two ago. He couldn't find much of what he wanted to say in the commentaries that he possessed, but he he explains why he's persuaded that the text is to be understood in the way that he is going to use it. Now, if you know Spurgeon, if you love Spurgeon, you might have a wry smile at this point and say, well, Mr. Spurgeon is not above sometimes using a text to say something that it doesn't quite say. And here he is on the other side of that saying, let's make sure that we only take from this text what it really does say. And his point is that very often people use 1 Peter 1.6 to offer some kind of comfort in trial to say, there's a needs be for your trials. It's necessary that you should go through these troubles and tribulations. And he says that's perfectly true. 
but it's not the truth that's found in this text. And there's the irony, because sometimes Spurgeon will say something like, well, uh, this isn't the truth that this text teaches, but it's the one that I'm going to teach from it. It's not the primary aspect, but it's the one that I want to take. We're going to walk in this direction. We're going to come in at this angle. But his point here is that we do want to be careful about what is needful. And it's not just needful that the Christian should suffer trials and troubles. What is needful here in this text is the heaviness, the grief, the distress, the oppression of spirit that may come down because of trouble. There is the necessity. And so he says that you can imagine a Christian who who just seems to respond with great strength and rises above his trials and tribulations, however great they may be. And he says, actually, most of us perhaps can't enter into some of that. We, we admire it, we applaud it, but we're not like that ourselves. There's another kind of Christian, he says, for whom this promise really was intended, who don't get the comfort of it when it's not used in the right way. I do admire the man, he says, that I have pictured to you. May God long preserve such men in the midst of the church. I would stimulate every one of you to imitate him. Seek for great faith and great love to your master, that you may be able to endure being steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord. But remember that this text has not in it comfort for such persons. There are other texts for them, those of triumphant faith at all times, or at least at times of great trial. This text, he says, is meant for another and a feebler grade of Christians who are often overlooked and sometimes despised. And this is where we understand something of where this sermon comes from and why it is so experiential or experimental. Now, we'll see quite clearly that Spurgeon is not turning his back on the truth in order to preach experience. But as he preaches the truth, he adorns it and he imbues it with the sense of his experience. Here he says, I was lying upon my couch during this last week and my spirits were sunken so low that I could weep by the hour like a child and yet I knew not what I wept for. But a very slight thing will move me to tears just now. Spurgeon at this point was horribly burdened in his soul. His mind was pressed down. And he says somebody came to him and and told him about a woman who was in awful agony and yet she was rejoicing with joy unspeakable and full of glory. And probably it was meant to be comforting and encouraging, and probably it only served to distress him yet further that he should be so battered down for whatever reason, and yet here was a woman who has had a terrible circumstance, and yet she was full of glory. And it was then that he began to understand this text because it wasn't just necessary that the Christian should be in trials, but necessary that the Christian should be in heaviness because of his trials. Spurgeon says there's an absolute needs be that sometimes the Christian should not endure his sufferings with a gallant and a joyous heart. There is a needs be that sometimes his spirit should sink within him and that he should become even as a little child smitten beneath the hand of God. 
Now, it's quite a painful thought on some levels, not just that we have to go through trials, but that the trials are going to batter us down. They are going to distress our souls. They are going to afflict us in our minds. They are going to bring us into gloom and darkness and deep grief and distress. Our spirits might sink so low that we can do nothing but weep like a child at the slightest thing. Why then? is Spurgeon's first question. What is the necessity, not just of the trial, but of heaviness, grief, distress, that sense of being overwhelmed in the trial? And he has several reasons for that, and he's quite brief, and I think the brevity might be explained by his condition. First of all, if we were not in heaviness during our troubles, we should not be like our covenant head, Christ Now, Spurgeon demonstrates how often Christ's faith did triumph, how he usually passed over his troubles like a ship floating over the waves of the sea. But he also notes that there were times when waves of swelling grief came into the vessel, when the Saviour, though full of patience, was obliged to say, My soul is exceedingly sorrowful, even unto death. And one of the evangelists tells us that the Saviour began to be very heavy. Our Lord knew what it was to have his spirits sink within him. That doesn't mean that he began to lack faith. In fact, we might say that his faith needed to be exercised more at that point than perhaps at other times. But nevertheless, the point is this, that the Saviour went through just such an experience. And if he went that way, so too his people can expect to tread that road. Spurgeon says then that you and I must not always expect a giant faith that can remove mountains. Sometimes even to us the grasshopper must be a burden, that we may in all things be like unto our head. There's a second reason why Christians need to suffer heaviness, because without it we would begin to grow too proud and think too much of ourselves and become too great in our own esteem. If we just had bounce-back ability, if we just uh, sailed through every trial, if we just rose above every uh, challenge that we face, we might begin to pat ourselves on the back. We'd we'd never have a sense of, of our need and our dependence. But when we're brought low, we discover what we're made of, and out of the depths we cry to God, humbled by our adversities. And then, perhaps leading on from that, in heaviness, we often learn lessons that we never could attain elsewhere. The psalmist said it was good for him that he had been afflicted in order that he might learn the law of God. And so, says Spurgeon, we need to go into affliction to learn lessons that we would never see anywhere else. There are beauties, he says, in the depths of the dell that you'd never see on the tops of the mountains. And it's through suffering that very often we are taught lessons, we see truths, we derive blessing that would never have come to us otherwise. Men, he says, will never become great in divinity, that is, great in theology, until they become great in suffering. They'll never really draw near to God with understanding until they've been through such trials. Ah, said Luther, affliction is the best book in my library. 
And, says Spurgeon, let me add, the best leaf in the book of affliction is that blackest of all the leaves, the leaf called heaviness, when the spirit sinks within us and we cannot endure as we would wish. But there's a fourth reason. This heaviness is of essential use to a Christian if he would do good to others. He refers to the fact that sometimes when we've had perhaps a relatively easy time of things, either uh, we are unusually healthy and don't often get sick, or we're typically quite stable or upbeat, when we look at somebody who's uh, often or quickly or painfully struck down with sickness, we might expect them just to suck it up and get on with things. Or when we see somebody who's bowed down with sorrows or distressed in spirit, we might tell them just to, to crack on and snap out of it. But, says Spurgeon, and perhaps we know this ourselves, once we've been through that kind of experience ourselves, we're less likely to judge and to condemn others who then go through it. There are none, says Spurgeon, so tender as those who've been skinned themselves. Those who've been in the chamber of affliction know how to comfort those who are there. And he says specifically with regard to ministers, God cannot make them, and he speaks with careful reverence, except in the fire. A Barnabas, a son of consolation, must suffer in order to serve in that way. It is there and there alone that God can make his sons of consolation. He, can make his th- he may make his sons of thunder anywhere, but his sons of consolation he must make in the fire and there alone. And perhaps, again, we know what that's like to be able then to minister comfort because we ourselves have been comforted. Now, the only other thing he notes is that the heaviness is but for a season. It is passing. Now, there's other things that, that he might have done. It would be interesting to hear more about that uh, that passing nature. It would be interesting to hear Spurgeon develop the temporary nature of this heaviness, uh, the, the boundaries of it, uh, both in our own life and then uh, with regard to life as a whole, that we do not always suffer trials and tribulations, most of us, and that even though the whole of life might be trial and tribulation, it would come to an end. He will pick that up. The other thing that he might have done was to perhaps develop the nature of the trials and tribulations that bring a Christian into heaviness. And if you're a preacher, then that might be something that you would wish to consider if you were taking a text like this. Is it trouble in the home? Is it the uh, the struggles that the church faces in the world? Is it pain in our bodies? Is it oppression in our minds? Is it temptation from the evil one? There are various ways in which we can be brought into heaviness. And Spurgeon seems to pass quickly over some of those things in order to get to a second part of his text where there's something far more joyous and comfortable than the first. Yes, there is this passing heaviness, but in that distress and grief, a Christian can greatly rejoice. And again, he emphasizes that that is not only possible, but to some extent normal. He uses the illustration of uh, seafarers who talk about parts of the ocean where there's a strong current going one way on the surface and in the depths a strong current running the other way. 
And he says the Christian can be like that. On the surface, there's a stream of heaviness rolling with dark waves, but in the depths, a strong undercurrent of great rejoicing that is always flowing there. Now, he's going to ask what that uh, substance of joy is, where the what the cause of that great rejoicing might be. But he's already telling us something very important. It's on the surface that there's a stream of heaviness. And you'll notice as we work through the grounds of our rejoicing that the heaviness comes from things that are circumstantial, whereas the joy comes from things that are substantial, enduring and lasting. Experience, with all its distress, brings this grief. But truth is what brings joy. Truth is the foundation upon which we rest. And that's where Spurgeon points us. Because the first thing that you rejoice about, he's drawing directly from Peter's language here, is that we are elect according to the foreknowledge of God. When we are in heaviness through manifold temptations, to know that God has chosen us brings us joy. Let me be lying on a bed of sickness, said Spurgeon, and just revel in that one thought. This may make a man's soul leap within him, and all the heaviness that the infirmities of the flesh may lay upon him shall be but as nothing, for this tremendous current of his overflowing joy shall sweep away the mill dam of his grief. Here then is a truth that gives us joy even in the midst of trials and facing the heaviness that those trials bring. Again, another reason. Elect through sanctification of the Spirit unto obedience and sprinkling of the blood of Jesus Christ, in which we greatly rejoice. Spurgeon interprets this as the obedience of the Lord Jesus Christ, which has been put to your account to be your beauty and your dress, and the blood of Christ sprinkled upon you to take away all my guilt and all my sin. And so in the midst of the depressions of spirit that can come upon you, and and it's interesting, he says, actually, possibly come upon me that shall make me break my harp, that the pronouns of this sermon are striking in their self-reference. It's not that it's a selfish sermon, I don't think, but very much, as we've said, that Spurgeon is entering into this in terms of his own experience. He is a sufferer. He feels this heaviness in manifold trials and temptations, and he is one who needs precisely these comforts to find his joy. And it's the fact that Christ is his saviour and is saving him, that he is chosen and that Christ is granting to him the righteousness that he needs and cleansing him through his blood in order that he may come again. And this is truth that keeps his soul joyful even in the midst of his heaviness because of trials. Then another reason. A great and cheering comfort of the apostle is that we are elect unto an inheritance incorruptible and undefiled and that does not fade away, reserved in heaven for us. This, says Spurgeon, is the grand comfort of the Christian. 
When the child of God is sore stricken and much depressed, the sweet hope that living or dying there is an inheritance incorruptible reserved in heaven for him may indeed make him greatly rejoice. Even as we come to the gates of death, even if the the, the crossing of the Jordan brings down a spirit of heaviness upon our souls, it's the prospect of what lies ahead that gives joy to the saint under those circumstances. Perhaps he's also thinking of how the Apostle Paul told the Thessalonians to comfort one another with the realities of the resurrection to come, of the blessings that lay ahead, of the certainty of every child of God being brought together into the presence of Christ on the day of resurrection. And so you speak to that believer of Canaan on the other side, the Jordan, of the land that flows with milk and honey, of the lamb in the midst of the throne and of all the glories which God has prepared for them that love him. And that's when you see his dull leaden eye light up with seraphic brightness. He shakes off his heaviness and he begins to sing. Why? Because there is glory to come. And then in drawing to a close, One more doctrine that will always cheer a Christian, and I think that this perhaps is the one chiefly intended here in the text. You notice how he's uh, having his cake and eating here, eating it here. So you've got the the fact of the incorruptible and undefiled inheritance reserved for you, which is the grand comfort of the Christian. Notice the grand comfort, but now he wants to drive it home a little deeper. Look at the end of the 15th verse, reserved in heaven for you who are kept by the power of God through faith unto salvation. So that though heaven itself is the grand comfort to which we cling and which gives us joy, what he calls perhaps one of the greatest cordials to a Christian in heaviness is that that glory to come is reserved not by our power, but by God's. We are not kept by our own strength but by divine strength. We are not left to our own keeping, but kept by the Most High. So no matter how deep we go, no matter how dark the uh, the spirit, no matter how much gloom may gather around us in the midst of our trials and our troubles, we are confident that Christ is keeping us, that God is watching over us, that the Spirit will not desert and forsake us. The Saviour keeps his people. God has undertaken to complete the work that he has begun, and a gospel that doesn't offer that kind of assurance and security is no good news at all. We do not perish because no one can pluck us out of the hand of God. And this then, as Spurgeon builds this composite picture of the grounds of a Christian's joy, again you notice it is all in something that is outside of us. It is not in our experience in the sense that it rises and falls with our circumstances. Christian joy is rooted in God and in his truth, his promises, his assurances, his great and gracious strength. And so we greatly rejoice, though now for a season, if needs be, we are in heaviness through manifold temptations. And then a final warning that the worldling needs to understand, the unbeliever must grasp that our heaviness is but for a season, 
whereas the heaviness of the unbeliever is to come, and it shall be a heaviness intolerable because hopelessly everlasting. Our temptations, though manifold, they are light afflictions which are but for a moment, working out for us a far more exceeding and eternal weight of glory. But the joys of the unbeliever are like bubbles, popping and passing away, and they're working exceeding and eternal misery. Spurgeon pleads, search and see whether all be right with your spirits, whether it be well for you to venture into an eternal state as you are, and may God give you grace that you may feel your need of a saviour, that you may seek Christ, lay hold upon him, and so may come into a gracious state wherein you shall rejoice greatly, even though for a season, if needs be, you should be in heaviness through manifold temptations. I hope if you're a Christian that you can find comfort in this. Comfort, first of all, in the reality of heaviness, and that someone like Spurgeon is not above it, that he is standing alongside you and speaking with you, not standing above you and talking at you, that he is speaking out of his own experience of misery and distress of the most grievous kind. And it also reminds us that we need to make sure that we tell ourselves truth, that though our circumstances may bring us into heaviness of spirit, that we must rest upon what is real and enduring. Experience rises and fall. Our frames and our feelings are not reliable. What helps us, what holds us, what keeps us is truth that God has spoken, the reality of Christ's saving accomplishments and all the promises that are yes and are men in him. So while perhaps as preachers, as we look at the text, we might have said, well, I'd like to do a little more here or a little more there. I'd, I'd draw more out of this. This could be explored. I think, as we've said, this is very much from the heart of Spurgeon. It's out of his experience, learning himself the blessing of this truth. And what has been of value to him, he preaches that it may be of value to us. And I trust that whether or not then we're, we're thinking how we might address such a topic, what kind of comfort or, or counsel we might bring, whether more formally from a pulpit or drawing alongside a struggling and suffering friend, that we might remember that heaviness itself is sometimes needful for the child of God as they pass for a season through the various trials and temptations of this fallen world. But it is the comfort of truth, the glory which is to come, the excellence of God's salvation, the certainty of God's election, the assurance that he keeps his people to the end that brings comfort to the heavy-hearted Christian and allows them to rejoice even in the midst of that grief and distress. I'm Jeremy Walker. And you have been listening to From the Heart of Spurgeon, a podcast from Media Gratii. We would love other people to learn about these truths, so please leave us a review on your favourite podcast app. Thank you very much indeed for listening.